we're awfully patient. Once we find a management team that we're excited about, we tend to do double and triple and quadruple down on that management team because that's the rare thing in the world in our view. It's not hard to find motor business. It's not hard to find property business or liability business. What's hard to find are partners. What's hard to find are really great uh, specialty underwriters. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are and whatever you're doing. And a special mention this week, if your dad's name is James, you live in Australia and you're in the car wondering why you have to listen to this weird stuff once a week on the way to school. Matthew Grant here, your host for the Instep podcast and partner, along with Robin Mertens and our growing team at Instep London. We're discovering some of the latest innovations driving improvements in insurance and risk around the world. Now, if you listen regularly, you'll know that every one of our guests is special in their own way. Some of them bring great insights into what's happening in the world we're living in. Others have founded companies that are truly making an impact. All of them have stories worth hearing. Otherwise, well, what's the point of doing this? My discussion with today's guest, Jeff Radke, and the company he founded, Accelerant, is really fascinating and fast-paced. It's an insight into what is really driving change now. Now, we talk about how Accelerant is supporting a lot of companies with over $2 billion of valuation now and 66 members underwriting around the world. And if you're working at an MGA looking for capacity or investment or you're building technology and want to know what's important out there or you're just looking for some inspiration, then this one is definitely for you. Now, we cover a lot and it's a bit longer than usual. It wasn't much we could cut out of this one. But as usual, I've jumped in when things get a bit technical or just give you a chance to catch your breath. Finally, live events are back on in London and we've got a great one coming up on the 27th of April. In Shortech, all sorts, a chance to get back to our origins and hear from some of the newer companies that are emerging in London. Details on the website, www.instech.london. And whilst you're there, you may want to take a look at our reports. Next up is our remote claims report and significant discounts are available. If you're not already a corporate member, you can register in advance to get a reduced fee. Okay, here's Jeff. Jeff, really looking forward to what we're going to be talking about today. We've got a lot to get through, uh, just given your background and then what you've done in the last uh, four years at Accelerant, but I'm sure we'll manage to get the highlights. Uh, So you started your life as a reinsurance broker, and then you were off with one of the original Bermudan reinsurance companies, became CEO of PX3, I think also in Bermuda, and then you had 10 years at Argo, and then you founded Accelerant back in, in 2018. And you've got a really intriguing role supporting MGAs or for our U.S. listeners, MGUs, who I believe we call your members. We can talk about that in a minute as well, all around the world. And according to reports, you raised $190 million in January this year. So uh, welcome. Thank you very much, Matthew. It's nice to be here. And I think you're calling in from Texas today. Is that right? Yep. In rainy San Antonio, which doesn't happen right. often, but today's the day. Great. Well, we've got sunny, sunny London. Uh, so we should talk a bit about Accelerant. And I guess the key question really is, as you're looking out there in, in 2018, given your experience and all the things you could have done, why was it you chose to do what you're doing with Accelerant? The business model of Accelerant was appealing to myself and, and my early colleagues uh, because it, it tied into some of the threads that either the economy generally was following, but certainly were very important to us. 
empowering the individual as opposed to the monolithic giant company. Um, that's very, very appealing to us. What technology has done is it's reduced the cost and allowed you to have different specialists be able to hand off things in a value chain without a loss of data quality, which is really the whole bedrock of the accelerant business model is the notion of we're going to have specialty underwriters and they are going to do what they're really, really good at, which is distribution and risk selection in their area of expertise. And what we as Accelerant are going to do is support them as best we can, as strongly we get as we can to make them as successful as possible, as quickly as possible. And it's really a specialization of labor and a bit of a turning of our backs on that big, giant, monolithic insurance company that so many of us worked in for so many years under the theory that a group of individuals can do a better job. Well, you, you certainly proved, I guess, the first couple of steps of that, which is you've attracted people to work with you and you've attracted some funding to do it. One thing that you mentioned in there, you talked about specialty underwriters having better distribution. Now, I think we both agree that distribution is one of the challenges for companies coming in at MGAs, but the distribution is generally done through the brokers. So when you talk about that better distribution, is that because those people have got better distribution because they are They've got better relationships with the, the retail brokers and the wholesale brokers that are selling this. They're not going direct, are they? No, no. So few exceptions that it doesn't bear talking about. Our members are not going direct. What I mean by uh, distribution from an underwriter's perspective is they have the relationships with the right retail and wholesale brokers to bring them the business in that niche. Yeah, which is still the big, the big challenge. And I think we forget sometimes the critical role of brokers, although it's obviously changed a lot from seven or eight years ago, people were trying to say that brokers weren't required. I think there's very few people other than maybe retail where that's that's happening today. And, and you're, as you said, you're, uh, is members the best way to describe the people you work with? I noticed you've referred to that a few times. Well, we think it is. Uh, we think it's right to call them members because uh, to a large degree, we think the industry has had it backwards for a long time. The insurance capacity providers tended to treat the MGAs like, I don't know, a vendor, I suppose, um, when really in Accelerant's world, they're our customer and they're our reason for existing to make them more successful. And they're a member of our network. And uh, because they're a member of our network, uh, we have a great responsibility that we feel to do everything we can to help them be successful. And being part of the being a member in the network has many other benefits too, right? Um, each, each member as part of our overall portfolio enjoys the, the outcome of having an incredibly diverse, relatively large portfolio of business. So in other words, um, it's insurance, right? Anyone can be unlucky in any given year. And for our members, that's okay because they're part of a large curated portfolio. Whereas in the more traditional sense, they would be viewed all by themselves on a standalone basis. Much more volatile proposition. That point that Jeff made there about having their members being part of a diverse portfolio intrigued me. What do you actually mean by that in practice? Well, hang in there because I'll be coming back to that in a few minutes. In the meantime, Jeff is about to explain why this can be a problem for small underwriting businesses which have relatively small premium income. These are then vulnerable to all of that going away if one or two large losses happen and if that does happen, then some of the more traditional insurers or reinsurers back in that business may decide to walk away. This is a problem that Accelerant is trying to solve. 
And one of the reasons that historically the traditional program business in the U.S. or MGA business or delegated authority business outside of the U.S., the reason those relationships are so choppy is because of exactly that. You know, these are really small transactions, mostly eight, 10, 12 million. A big one's 25 million. And, you know, you sustain two, five million pound losses or one 10 million pound losses, and you're hopelessly upside down. And quite often, the capacity provider or reinsurer providing coverage to a fronting company would sit, look at, make that determination about whether they wanted to continue based solely on that one standalone program, which, you know, you can imagine is always going to be a, a much more choppy outcome. Yeah, I want to come back and just talk a bit more about that in a minute, but just so we can kind of paint the visual picture of the types of organizations you're working with. You get a hint there in terms of size, but it'd be useful to know if you can put a number on it, how many, and I know it's a moving target, but how many members you have? 66 as of 4.30 Eastern time. Congratulations. And then what's the sort of spectrum or the range from... I don't know what sure the best ways to measure it. Is it premium income or whatever you choose to measure it? But between those sort of small yeah, and large. Maybe, maybe we'll throw out a bunch of numbers to give you a sense, right? Um, uh, our largest would be $100 million. Uh, they're rare. Um, I think we've got, we have one at 100. We've got a lot of twos and threes and fours. Um, one of the things that I'm sure you hear, um, especially newer organizations express frustration about is minimum premiums where capacity providers say it's just as much work for me to do a $2 million versus a $50 million uh, program. And that's true. Go back to our belief in people, in individuals. Uh, you know, it wasn't in 2018, we didn't have 50 million in premium. And uh, aren't we lucky that that our risk capital partners decided to trade with us, even though we were new, even though uh, we didn't have enough volume. So we try really hard to find the good, bright underwriting management teams and support them as best we can. So I guess what I would say is um, most of them have 10 to 15 employees. Most of them have, as we talked about, have uh, an experience base of multiple years behind them, but not all. Uh, we do small ones. The average is probably creeping up above 50 now in terms of the average premium, premium volume. But we try really hard not to focus too much on that because, again, we all started at near zero. And uh, it takes time to build a book, especially if you're doing it responsibly. So we're, we're awfully patient. Once we find a management team that we're excited about, we tend to do double and triple and quadruple down on that management team because that's the rare thing in the world in our view. You know, it's not hard to find motor business. It's not hard to find property business or liability business. What's hard to find are partners. What's hard to find are really great, uh, specialty underwriters. So those smaller ones, the two to four million, they're those are the ones where, I mean, sort of implicit what you're saying you'd expect some growth out of them you're providing them well you're providing them capacity you're also providing them with operational support and i know you provide investment support so we should come back and talk about that but but you're you're looking for the growth in there so a couple of questions on top of that because you said in that it's mostly people with experience but i think you gave the the hint that you might be interested also in looking at companies where people might have good analytics or better than good, very good <laughs> analytics, or I presume some kind of strong distribution, but they may not have actually yeah. already 
build a book. Is that right? So you're sort of helping people write from the mm-hmm. sort of or, earliest or ideas. a great idea that we're convinced of by them. You know, it's amazing when you see someone with real belief and enthusiasm behind something. And it's the kind of undertaking where you can experiment. We quite like that. I guess we've, we've borrowed a little bit from what we hear from our more technology driven, uh, uh, friends where, you know, the, the experiment often fail fast. That's not a very insurancey thing, right? And insurance wants a track record, et cetera, et cetera. If we can find a, a way to make a small bet and prove out uh, a new idea, we quite like those as well. And on that new idea, are you able to put a figure on the balance between the business you're supporting that is, you know, might be considered more traditional underwriting versus you know, the, the new emerging risk or how you might characterize it. I mean, cyber is obviously the biggest one out there that I think we'd say is in that category. But what's the balance between traditional and, and the new stuff? Now, this would be a good point to pay close attention. Jeff has got many years of experience in insurance. He's been given hundreds of millions of dollars to invest in his business. And he's about to tell you a couple of the areas he thinks have the most potential growth in the years ahead. For us, the uh, the new stuff would be uh, intermittent coverage and embedded coverage. Cyber isn't a big area for us, um, right? But intermittent meaning when you need it and turns off when you don't, and then embedded insurance is probably by premium, maybe fifteen percent of our book, ten percent of our book, which our book close to a billion dollars uh, th- this year. We expect that's a pretty fair amount of experiments. And those um, embedded companies, are they are they coming to you as MGAs that have already got the relationships set up? Or are you also seeing people that have got sort of retail access or customers, and then you're kind of helping with the whole embedded technology? In each of our cases, and this is just how it worked out, I don't think this is a strong preference of, on behalf of Accelerant, but in each of the cases where we're supporting embedded insurance, there was an existing MGA that came to us with frustration about uh, the service they were getting from their insurance carrier. And then on the investment side, so of your 66 members, are they all getting investment from you or is there a mixture between some that get capacity, some that get investment? No, absolutely not. Um, our investment uh, or our ability to invest is another member service, just like product development, uh, data consulting, you know, digital offerings. Uh, you know, we've got, I've forgotten the, the list. It's probably 20 sort of member services or tools that we make available and, and growth capital is one of them, but it's very much a pull from the member rather than a push from our side. I will say this almost without exception. We know these organizations a hundred times better than any lender or any new investor could know them. We are able to move incredibly quickly, whether it's to finance growth through acquiring the team or whether it's buying uh, another MGA to try and broaden the, their, the offering. We, uh, we bend over backwards to, to try and be helpful to our members as they, uh, have these, uh, the, these ideas about how they can grow and capital is one of them. But again, it's very much a pull, certainly not a requirement. What's the sort of the earliest stage? And then I guess what's the sort of largest stage you go up to in terms of investment? We, we don't think about it that way. We think about it as, uh, these are management teams that we're backing and a lot of them needed, I guess you'd call it pre-seed actually. 
getting out of blocks money. And then we've provided an investment for an organization that was 42 years old. I don't know why I remember that, but I do. Um, uh, so we don't really think about it as much as we think about just managing, helping back the management team. We're about 15 minutes into talking, Jeff. So people are bearing with us, which is, which is good because by definition, they've got this far, but we should just talk about in particular people you're looking to partner with could be a number of different ways to technology providers, your members, your capacity investors, and I guess in your business, what, what, what specifically are you most keen to be able to find now to, to grow your business? I don't want to sound like I take the other participants or the other stakeholders on the platform for granted because we do not. But it feels to us like if you're stay focused on the member and you do a good job managing that business that the member entrusts to you, then the other parts of the platform take care of themselves. So the risk capital providers, et cetera, the investors, that all works out. So where I like to spend most of my time is where the organization spends most of its time, which is thinking about, you know, how can we better serve broader and broader groups of, again, I'm going to say specialty underwriters, just to remove the MGU, MGA stuff. This MGU, MGA stuff that Jeff is referring to is the fact that the MGAs, that's the Managing General Agents, also known as MGUs, Managing General Underwriters in the US, and both of them have a delegated underwriting authority, and many of them are also specialty underwriters, meaning that they are underwriting the unusual and hard-to-write business that the general insurers, or in the US, admitted insurers or carriers, can't write or don't want to. Anyway, that's enough insurance tuition for now. Let's get back to Jeff. We're having amazing success have encouraging and helping teams leave in insurance companies right and set up on their own as an mga mgu again perfectly aligned with our mission if you go right back to the the beginning of our conversation so i i, I guess if if i were going to have a commercial part of the conversation what i'd say is that if you're a specialty commercial underwriter today and you are either inside an MGA or a program administrator, and you're frustrated with the support you're getting from your capacity provider, give us a call. Uh, if you're uh, that same underwriter and you're inside an insurance company, either in Europe or the UK or the US, uh, well, equally give us a call. Uh, we've developed, based, based on market acceptance, we've developed a pretty nifty way to get you from where you're working now to your own shop, where you're the boss running your own business. Uh, we've developed a, a path there that's pretty effective. And presumably that covers regulatory aspects as well, because that's a, mm-hmm. often a key aspect people need to get through. So you can, you can bundle that into the offering. And that yes, it, what I would describe as a framework, both operational and regulatory framework, financial framework, uh, and, and then um, support to the extent you need it in whatever guise that comes, whether, again, whether you need help getting your digital offering off the ground or perhaps that's all you have is a really great tech. We have a couple members like that where we filled in sort of everything else. We found the right underwriting talent to fill in behind them. And you mentioned earlier on geographies. Uh, I mean, as we now return back to work and certainly London is definitely getting very much back face to face. Do you also provide, or maybe you don't need to, that it's a physical presence for, for people to, to be, or is the world, your world moving more digital anyway for what these organizations are, are doing? 
especially the U.S. half of the company, was formed during the pandemic. We've got employees in Seattle. We've got employees in Florida. We've got employees in San Diego, and we've got employees in New Hampshire. We could never have an office now. Right. They're spread out all over the place. Things are easier uh, in the U.K. And, and London specifically because that tends to be such a hub. What we found is way more important than an office location is getting together. So what we do about every six weeks, uh, sometimes longer, six, ten weeks, is everyone picks a hub airport on the U.S. team. We all get together and everyone picks a hub airport uh, in the U.K. and Europe, and, and we all get together. And what we find is really being conscious of of forcing that FaceTime and being pretty pretty thoughtful about how you want to spend that time because what you're not doing really is you're not trying to establish goals or you're not trying to get work done. You're trying to strengthen those connections, right? So when the chips are down on a Sunday, you want, you want that accelerant spirit to flow through where, you know, if you need something or if any of our colleagues ever needs anything, the way that the, that the rest of the group reacts is just extraordinary. And we want to keep that, that culture of, uh, you know, mutual support. So th- th- we feel like that's more important than an office location. Right. And, and airport hubs rather than exotic uh, tourist destinations in, uh, in fancy islands is the, is the location of choice for the time, for the time being. Anyway. Having, having said that, the first one in Europe was in an island and a tourist destination. So um, uh, perhaps do as I say, not as we do. Uh, but um, maybe this will change, Matthew. But my colleagues have really changed their view of travel. It's already guilty until proven innocent. Like, what? why? Why do you want? I don't want it. It's a waste of time. It's kind of uncomfortable. Don't like hotels. Um, it, are you sure that this is worth it? And uh, I kind of like it. I kind of like that you have to justify it. Yeah. And also, I think if you're seeing just seeing one company, I mean, I noticed that in the U.S., because because the distance people travel, you tend to go and see a company. They kind of expect to look after you for half a day. The whole process is just timely for travel. It's timely on the ground. At least you know, when you go to a hub or London or New York, you can tend to sort of cover more people in a, sp- in a shorter space of time. So I think there's less less resistance to face to face. And also, of course, you know, your whole environmental footprint as well. I think we're definitely going to see a, a, a shift, in, shift in work practices there. Uh, and then, Jeff, I just want to talk to you about some of the themes that we're seeing and just you know, test those against you for your reaction. So, so one of the, the themes that came out the strongest when we surveyed, we had about 160 companies that are working with, we asked, uh, was, was algorithmic underwriting. And, and yeah, most people now are familiar with what's happening with Key in London and then Vave now from Canopius. <laughs> Whoa, hang on there, Matthew. That's a rather a generic statement there on reflection. So just to clarify, Key, spelled K-I, is an algorithmic syndicate set up by Brit Insurance in London, and Vave is an automated syndicate set up by Canopius, also in London. Both are operating out of Lloyd's. Jeff's about to explain more about algorithmic underwriting, but if you want to learn more about automated and algorithmic syndicates in general, then head over to our website and download our report written by my fellow partner, Robin Mertens. Now, back to me. Most people now are familiar with what's happening with Key in London and then Vave now from Canopius. What's your view on, I guess, that from the accelerant point of view, and maybe more broadly as you know, the next generation of underwriting capability and, and how that might relate to what else is going on in the specialty business? Well, algorithmic underwriting makes all the sense in the world as long as you're in a spot where you've got uh, enough homogeneity and enough volume. 
And that's a lot of our business, right? A lot of the business that we write, small to medium-sized commercial business, uh, lends itself to that. And I guess what I would say is if you, uh, if you're dealing with policies that are kind of small, they have particular nuances, right? Which is again, our book, then the algorithm is perfect. It's just, it's the humans thinking, uh, embodied into a set of rules. And if you don't think that the human would notice or need to notice the nuances about the individual risk, then there's no reason to take up the human's time and, and with it. And I will say, I, you know, I think there have been enough studies now we can say it out loud. The algorithm doesn't make mistakes either, right? Um, meaning it applies those set of rules accurately each time, um, which can't be said, uh, frankly, uh, of humans applying that same algorithm. So I, I think in its spot, it has, it has great application, like anything, when the large size of the pool gets smaller and smaller, or when homogeneity is no longer uh, applicable, then I think those algorithms are just, that's not their spot, right? But I'll tell you, those algorithms, the algorithms can still help inform you in a lot of areas where we don't algorithmically under it. Boy, that algorithm is telling, is telling uh, all of Accelerant and our member, hey, do you know that last week losses were much hotter than expected? Hey, do you know that, um, you know, escape water claims are costing 12% more in London this year than last year? So those are all algorithms too. And uh, I would argue that sometimes providing the right input into the human algorithm, into the human brain, might be the fastest way to success. Especially on the specialty stuff where, again, the homogeneity is tough. It reminds me of the early days of catastrophe modeling when we realized that no matter what somebody thought the models, you know, were they right, how accurate were they, the very act of trying to put data into model revealed all sorts of messiness in the data. And you, you actually learn something that is a, is a factor of the modeling or lack of being able to do the modeling, which I think it sounds like similar to what you're saying with, you know, with the algorithm. If the algorithm is working cleanly and you accept the data, then you've got to make a decision about how the pricing. But if for some reason you can't put it in there and you think you should be able to, and it, or it's throwing up anomalies, it might be telling you a little bit more about your underlying portfolio that you hadn't actually paid attention to. Yeah, or certainly, certainly the lack of data quality around it. Matthew, I'd be embarrassed, so I'm not going to tell you how many people really are trying to fix <laughs> Accelerant's uh, data that we're getting. I, the number of heads we have, plus the machine learning and, and all the data scientists that we have focused on it, it is a big, big challenge. It's a big, big problem. The prize is there, though. Uh, boy, is the prize there. Because when you can do what we do, which is provide first class, completely uh, scrubbed, where you know the quality across the value chain, so you're not like hiding it, and we have an information advantage, and and everyone else has an information disadvantage. But if you're open and transparent, and you're trying to uh, empower and enable those individual firms doing specialty work, boy, uh, it, it really, it really sings you know, to a large extent. To the extent that Accelerant has been fortunate enough to have success in its early years, it's really just a function of the success of our members and our risk capital providers, right? We're just we're along for the ride, trying to facilitate that transaction. Yeah, well, be careful what you, uh, I don't know if you wish for it, but what you disclose on that data cleansing one, because that was the second most popular theme across insurers. Unfortunately, companies offering technology for doing 
you know, essentially data ingestion, enhancement, you know, cleansing, all those different things in there. We did a report on that. And we had something like 40 companies at the time, and we've had another bunch of people telling us they weren't in it. So if the good news is you're not the only ones trying to solve this problem, the bad news is this problem should have been sorted 30 years ago. So I'm not quite sure whether we're going to fix it anytime soon. But yeah, no, I don't think it'll be anytime soon. Also, not, not to be provocative, but I'm not sure it should have been fixed 30 years ago. I don't know the last time you went to get a mortgage, right? I just recently uh, moved house. And as you go through the mortgage process, you realize just how bad their data is. I mean, I'm being a bit optimistic, but I, I, my hope would have been that the whole syndicated nature of the specialty insurance business, even 30 years ago, would have led people to, to collaborate in a, you know, a positive way, not a price-fixing way about getting the data better and come out with standards. Mm. It worked in reinsurance, treaty reinsurance hasn't yet worked in specialty, but I do see some light on the horizon, a combination of better data being available, third-party data sources, and then just the technology to extract it from all the different formats. And then, Jeff, there's one thing else you mentioned earlier on in that. I just wanted to come back and ask you about. So you're mentioning about how people can get a little bit more stability within Accelerant because they might have a portfolio that is more volatile. But as Accelerant, you can absorb that. It's part of the model that you offer or an option to your members. Is they Can they share in some kind of pooling arrangement or portfolio arrangement, or are they all essentially standalone within their own uh, world? Sorry, they're all standalone. What I meant by my comment was because our portfolio is now gotten to the point where I guess it's reasonably large, the experience of any one member isn't going to sort of knock us off our line too badly. So as a result, yeah. you don't get these emotional reactions that so often typify the insurance industry's reaction to losses. Hi, it's Holly here, member manager at Instec. Our next live event, Instec All Sorts, is coming up on the 27th of April at Codenode in London. This event will see Instec going back to our grassroots, hearing from a collection of new, early-stage companies, and of course, some of our old friends too. We expect to book up quickly, so go register on our website at www.instec.london. As a reminder, members can attend for free. Our ticket support email can also be found on our website. Or if you want to know more about becoming a member, please do drop us an email. We look forward to seeing you there. Now back to the podcast. And then we touched on this before with the brokers. I just want to come back to that one because that's a theme that we keep hearing is what is the willingness and ability in the state of the brokers to be able to handle some of the new technology coming through. It's a very broad question I appreciate, but are you seeing uh, sort of across the business an increased recognition amongst the brokers and, and I guess you know, the wholesale brokers and others that are influenced in the space to be able to help their clients understand the different choices that they've got or people still defaulting back to what they know? No, absolutely not. In our space, that small to medium-sized space, the, um, we don't see improvements in data capture or transmission I don't think I can speak to how they're presenting their clients with choice. The beginning part of your question, I thought, was, you know, is it improving? And the answer is no, absolutely not. If you're looking at offering new ways of covering risk or you've got new organizations that are offering choices to the brokers, are they, are they actually more active in what they're looking for? We find the, uh, the innovative products are distributed by brokers that are distributing innovative products. What that means is, there are brokers that uh, prefer the newer products, and then there are brokers that say, geez, you know, I'm doing so well with the traditional. I'm going to focus on that. 
So uh, it, it, there is very much a tale of two cities there in terms of what the brokers are attracted to. So, Jeff, you've been working technology for, for most of your career. We've talked about the business side, but are there some more specific examples about where you can see positive use of technology and in particular things that you, you really feel encouraged about that are actually starting to be practical from a user point of view as opposed to great ideas, but still theoretical? I think you, you asked a really important question because sometimes I think technology exists out in the ether just because it's neat or cool. And, and, uh, that was enough for the creators of the technology. But the real chance that technology has to create value is when it's applied in an effective way. And I, I guess the way I'd answer that question from Accelerant's perspective is the analytics Data and analytics part of, of our overall technology stack, we refer to as insightful. And what we're seeing increasingly as the amount of data that gets captured builds and builds, what we're seeing is that insightful is helping us and our members catch anomalies in the data that are really the, the early warning signs, the very early warning signs of trouble. So if you think about it, whatever those movies were with Dr. Evil, he was always in his control room, right, with lights and gauges all over. That's what we've sort of built at Accelerant um, from a technological perspective. So we're running an awfully big actual versus expected matrix on 180 products, 65 members, uh, you know, and however much premium. And we're asking some some questions that we've never been able to ask, at least in my career. We're having it point out, pointed out to us when one underwriter inside an MGA is responsible for most of the growth in new business, uh, especially when they haven't been historically. Oh, interesting. I wonder what changed. When escape of water claims in London start costing 17% more on average than they did in the previous years. We get alerted to that within, I think it was like seven or eight weeks after lockdown was eased. Really interesting, actionable things um, that we, we take steps to, to manage. And then, of course, I have to say, you can imagine that with a relatively new system and the machine learning trying to identify which anomalies are really important and which aren't, we get a lot of false positives. And that's okay. That's okay. We'll, we'll get better and better and better. Um, but having the data to direct your energies just makes us so much more effective as curators of this portfolio. Our loss ratio performance has just been spectacular. And I chalk it up to being able to see what the members are up to and being able to tell the members what they're up to. There's a very, two very different skills in insurance. Well, it may be in underwriting, at least in my view. The first one is individual risk selection and pricing. It's really important. And then there's another skill set, which is portfolio management. And they're different. And you need different tool sets, maybe even different skill sets to do those two different things. And what we find is Insightful delivers the, forgive me, insights that you need for the portfolio management. And the our members have just from their years of experience, they have the expertise between their ears to do the individual risk selection. What they need help with from a technology perspective is that is that portfolio management thing. And we think we've achieved great stuff and really helped our members be much more profitable, which, of course, they they participate in. So um, uh, our members, on average, grow at 19.8 percent a year. Whoa. Right. 
and they're almost all getting profit commissions on their sliding scales. From a financial perspective, our members are generally delighted that they've uh, that they've switched to Acceler. We have something like a 90 NPS score, which I almost I'm reticent to talk about because it feels like something that can only come down, doesn't it? But but uh, nonetheless, uh, we kill ourselves for the, for our members, and I, I think they see it and appreciate it. And insightful and the technology behind it is a big part of it. There's a lot in there, Jeff. So just made, just want to come back and talk a bit about those. So just to make sure we're clear on the, the growth number. So 19.8% average growth across your, I, I mean, I guess not all 66 members or it's average, but some are newer than others, but that's, that's impressive. And then your, your 90 NPS, which is, I'm guessing, net promoter score. Yes. Is that with your, is that with your, your own people or is that with the clients? That is giving you that score. But it's a very high. It's a very very high score to get that. Our clients score is eight, nine, ten. Right, right. That is how is how we're calculating. Which means that they the eight, nine, ten basically means they would be a very strong recommenders of anybody else to use accelerant companies. Uh, and, and then, then the, next, the follow-on question, Matthew, is uh, how much of your growth is now inbound inquiries? And I would say eighty percent, eighty-five percent. So they are yeah. they are recommending us. So the MGA in Yorkshire is suggesting to his or her mate down in somewhere else, hey, these guys are doing a good job. You should give them a call. So that's a, a fantastic snowball effect, I guess, if want a better word. But what happened back in 2018 when you started? Because how did you kick this off? And I mean, you've grown very quickly. You've, you've convinced people to spend or put a lot of money behind you to keep growing it. Yeah. What was it um, in those early, early years? The team. The team, uh, wh- whether it's the European team or the U.S. team, uh, in addition to all this uh, technology that we talked about and uh, in capital, we've got an extremely experienced team. We've all grown up inside these big organizations, and we have um, we have the zeal of of like the newly escaped, <laughs> right? Um, just being able to be in a startup in a company that's completely focused on someone else's success and not uh, not with a bunch of bureaucracy laid over on us. Um, the whole mission is completely different. Instead of trying to cut 3% of overhead, which results in people, right? No one cares. No one cares mm-hmm. inside those big organizations. There's a bunch of 40 and 50-year-old men and women that are just like a new lease on life. But in, with all that enthusiasm and energy comes an extraordinary amount of experience. And I think that experience and our collective and individual reputations are what started the beginning, uh, the first few members where they came across because uh, they knew one of us. Yeah. And, and inherent in what you've been saying is the, the model you've got. You're not, it's not like you're starting up a carrier who needs heavy legacy systems to be able to process all of your uh, incoming underwriting. And I mean, you've, you've basically been able to build this from scratch and the tool you talked about. Which I, we didn't, I didn't comment as he went through it, but that makes a huge amount of sense. And actually, it was particularly interesting the way you're describing it. It was both in the perspective of the human behavior of the underwriter, or I guess it could be all sorts of different people involved in, in touching a risk, as well as some of the, the trends they're seeing, as well as potentially trends both in terms of pricing and also you know, some of the actual loss trends. And I mean, there's a lot you can do with that data once you get it. It's not how people conventionally think about it. It's just being focused on on one narrow area, which is typically kind of looking at the loss, but, but all those other leading indicators. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and, uh, 
And you know, uh, this is obvious, but when you, when you focus all your attention on the laws, you're by definition driving, looking in the rear view mirror, right? It's all backward looking, all backward looking. So we really spend a lot of time and energy trying to think about prospective stuff and prospective stuff are really just, if you think about it, are prejudices or hypotheses, if you want to be fancy, but really, you know, I think larger limit utilization is going to increase the volatility of the book. Seems like a reasonable assumption, but let's track that, right? I think that the size of the insurer, just in terms of sales or employee count, is probably a rotten proxy, but still a proxy for complexity of the risk. So maybe we should track that too, and et cetera, et cetera. There, there's yep. a myriad of, of ideas. Normally what you have to do there is you have to bring in a data scientist that doesn't know anything about insurance. So uh, he, he or she isn't sort of crippled by all this, uh, you know, received wisdom. <laughs> yeah, and you can figure out how to get the data to work as well. So you mentioned a couple of things in there, such as escape of water after lockdown. But anything else you can share with us or might be willing to share? We're not going to call you a crystal ball because it's, it's much more sophisticated than that. But either personal views of what's going to evolve or things you're starting to see in the data. This is going to be incredibly trite. But um the biggest thing that I, any of us are going to be talking about for the next three or four years is inflation or loss trend. Um, it's fierce. Boy, it is fierce. And uh, it's not just the financial inflation of the stuff costs more. Um, it becomes this horrible self-fulfilling prophecy. And I'm old enough to kind of remember uh, the last time that it reared its ugly head. And it's, it's a, a lot of things are similar, right? I think the 1986 crisis was really brought about in part by not keeping up in the seventies and eighties with the, uh, with the loss trend. So we're spending a ton of time thinking about that. And uh, you know, it's not very popular, but rate is sort of the only way to go at it. Um, your deductibles get eroded away. Right. Your excesses are, are not worth very much. Um, you can keep cranking them, I suppose. But at some point, Matthew, insurance is a financing tool for the person who's buying it. And if the deductible goes up to the point where they can't self-finance, what's the point? OK, this is worth reflecting on for a moment. What Jeff is saying is that we buy insurance as a way to finance our payments against future losses. The deductible, also known as excess, that Jeff refers to is a part of the insurance that the policyholder has to pay out themselves. So Jeff's point is if inflation means that insurers keep pushing higher deductibles back to their policyholders, then at some point people think, well, what's the point of buying insurance if I have to pay so much myself anyway? So it is a rate challenge and it'll never stop until, until we sort of normalize again. That, that, that I think is going to be when we look back on this five year period, 10 years from now, um, that'll be the big story. I think inflation. Um, the other big story that I hear, frankly, from others, uh, we're not experiencing it is talent and the difficulty of getting and keeping talent. And I think what's starting to happen is who knew that in the end, what would really hurt those big monolithic companies, whether you're a bank or an insurance company or whatever, is no one will come work for you anymore. But, you know, maybe that's what we're seeing because, I mean, we've got 167 employees and, uh, you know, we had 
it felt like two weeks ago we had a hundred. I'm sure that's wrong, but I mean, we're growing, we're growing really fast and hiring people that I'm super excited to have as my colleagues. So there's something, there must be something different in the proposition. I think it's got to be the value proposition from a human perspective has got to be very different. Well, I think you hinted at it earlier on. You were talking about companies looking for cost reductions, and the first place to go for cost reductions is is people. So traditionally, if you'd worked for a large company, you felt you had more job security than going to. And I'm not quite sure if I can still allow you to call yourself a, a startup, but definitely a scale up. You know, when you've got your kind of size, then there's that point there's a bit more stability in the business. So why wouldn't they go and work for a company or even you know, a company our size of 11 people now? There's a bit of you, your likelihood is you're going to have a pretty exciting time there, and the company's going to survive. You go to a big large global corporate organization and who knows what's around the corner in the next cost cutting exercise. So I, yeah, I completely agree with you. We've seen the same thing. The war for talent is real and uh, companies have to work harder to get the good people. But the good thing is for the good people, there's many more choices out there than there might have been 10, 15 years ago to actually make a difference in the organizations they've joined. So I think there is a positive side to it. Mm, indeed. Good. Well, Jeff, we've covered an awful lot in there. Is there anything we haven't spoken about just as a sort of final or almost final comment that you, you think is important for people to be aware of what you're doing or, or you might want to talk to them about? No, I don't think so. I just, um, you know, if you, if you are an individual with, a, with a, a, a passion for whatever part of the value chain you're in, I'd love for you to give us a call because if we don't need you now, whatever your skill set is, we're going to need it soon. We're, uh, Always looking for great people to work with. So um, if if what you heard about Accelerant sounds interesting, by all means, give me or anyone else on, uh, from Accelerant a call. Uh, we'd love to talk to you. Well, if I was 10 years earlier in my career, I might be giving you a call myself, Jeff, because it, uh, it does sound very exciting. You'd be, a spring, you'd be a spring chicken at Accelerant, Matthew. Come on over. <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite sure you've taken me, but that's a different question. Um, so just more specific around that, what I mean specifically for people to reach out, is there a uh, – I mean, we must have now got an HR department, or is it someone? Call me, 210-452-0249. That's plus one. Is uh, Since the pandemic, I let my UK number lapse. Shame on me. Well, watch out, Jeff, because I'm sure there's some AI out there that's going to be sucking in all telephone numbers from podcasts, and you're going to get right. lots of... Uh, but that was very generous of you, and I, having known you for a while, you are a very generous individual. I'm sure that's why Accelerant has been doing so well and growing so fast. So... Uh, Jeff, that was fantastic. Thank you also for us for your support for Instec. You know, really enjoyed what we've been doing so far. Got a number of organisations we're about to uh, put your way as well that you know we rate pretty highly, and I think we'd be good people to take yeah, a look at. Do, and you're, you're doing great stuff, right? And and isn't it isn't it fun to be able to find these people with these idea, and maybe they just don't quite know the they don't have the right Rolodex or you know, and to be able to make it happen for them, it's just so exciting. Yeah, it's tremendous. And I know you're back and forward between the UK and the US, so hopefully you'll be able to get one of your trips to coincide with one of our events or dinners here and give people a chance to see you uh, face-to-face. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, Jeff. Cheers. Bye-bye. Well, there's so much in this episode that we are going to give away a free 
edited transcript of the recording to make it easier to review and recall all of what we discussed. Now, we want to know who's listening, so please do message me, Matthew Grant, on LinkedIn if you'd like to get that transcript. Or indeed, if there's anything else you'd like to tell us about the podcast or what you'd like to see in it. Now, if you want to learn more about our corporate membership and how we can help you really understand what is going on in the world and be part of the stories people share, then please do contact me or any of us at hello at instec.london. London.